KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. From KCRW Santa Monica and KCRW.com, it's The Treatment. It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. In watching the movie Barbie, the line came to me, we don't have to be constantly entertaining ourselves, do we? It's another line (laughs) written by the writer and director of Barbie, Greta Gerwig. That line is from her directorial debut, a little film called Lady Bird, for which I had a chance to speak to her a while back. It's good to have her here. Greta, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Um, I was very caught off guard by you quoting <laughs> quoting another movie, but it, it really, that was very nice. Thank you. <laughs> that kind of characters trying to articulate their dissatisfaction. I mean, we can go back to Francis Ha, but it's, it's happened so often for you and then and these people that you write. That's true. I mean, I also think, you know, they're kind of the character in Lady Bird who says, you know, do we have to be constantly entertaining ourselves? I actually think the Barbie experience of a movie is so, um, you know, maximalist because Barbie is so maximalist. I think um, that character of Marion might have something to say about it. (laughs) That idea for these characters who are summing up their place in the world as often as not, but again, trying to figure out what it is that's making them unhappy in some way they can't quite articulate and needing a moment to breathe, um, looking for that, that respite. That's something dealing with over a kind of a environmental overcrowding is something that that's kind of home for you, isn't it? I always thought about Barbie as well, almost like uh, in the beginning, the, it, where we are and the way we designed it visually and um, I kind of thought about it was that, you know, it was taking from the inspiration from the actual toys, like the dream houses, but that there would be literally no place to hide. There are literally no doors there's no corner to hide from. We framed everything very um, frankly. And uh, Rodrigo Prieto, who's my cinematographer, would say like, innocently, nothing is obscured because there's no, there's no death, there's no shame, there's no aging, there's no pain. It's just wonderful. And I thought there was something about that that felt very familiar to um, the certain kind of mythology that we all know from, um, you know, Genesis, really. And that kind of realization of, uh, oh my gosh, I suddenly have shame where I had none before and I realize I'm naked. And I always thought of the movie as kind of clicking along in this maximalist fashion that is kind of almost overloaded with um, color and lights and brilliancy and songs and all this stuff. And then all of a sudden, when, you know, Barbie says, do you guys ever think about dying? It's like she breaks the movie. I'm always interested in that place of, um, it's almost like the bottom falls out. I'm so interested to what people do when it seems like the bottom falls out. And it happens so early in your movies. I was thinking back to the opening <laughs> of Little Women where where uh, Tracy Letts has that great line, tell her to make it short and spicy. And if the main character is a girl... Make sure she's married at the end or dead. I mean, that, that bringing these characters <laughs> yes. up short at the very beginning and having them sort of figure out where they're going to go. I mean, that, again, we go back to Francis. How are any number of things that you've done that would that idea of just sort of pulling the rug out from the character and making them aware 
of, I guess, the, the deficits in their surroundings. I mean, that, that fascinates me. Yeah, no, I mean, as particularly with that, um, that sort of married or dead, I always thought that that was true of a lot of female literary heroines and that we sort of set out the rules at the beginning. That's what needs to happen. And, you know, in the original Louisa May Alcott book, they all did end up either married or dead. That was true. I, I don't know that I conceptualize it this way while I'm actually working on it, but in retrospect, I can see it. You know, there's always this sort of emotional life, the internal life of the characters uh, and that that logic, which is it's its own magic. But then it's always, you know, the movie is a container. And what are the rules of the container? And I think that's something I'm always, I don't know, I'm always interested in for lots of reasons, probably because like I, I had like certain formative experiences with, um, with uh, mostly musicals that did things that um, either broke the fourth wall or sort of pointed out the constructedness of what was happening while it was happening. Like, I guess the things that come to mind from childhood are like Pippin. There's a kind of a moment where Pippin has to decide something. And I remember being just shocked by that as a kid, that the, the kind of players of Pippin, really, they're trying to tempt him. I think I, it's been a lot while since I've seen it, almost into suicide. And then they turn to the audience and they say, don't you think you should do this? And I, I remember being, as a child, stunned by that. And then Another one that was a big formative thing for me was in, in Into the Woods, Stephen Sondheim, um, the kind of framing of like the first act is the end of the fairy tales that we know. And then the second act is what happens after that. And it that, that kind of being inside of it and caring for it in a very traditional way, and then also having a, a lens that kind of gets a little farther back has been a place that I've I, I find myself again and again. The idea of, of couching all these things in what is superficially festive in Barbie, not only that, but also just thinking about these things you've done, and they're all kind of in these ways about looking back. I mean, because even though Barbie, Barbie's contemporary, the Barbie world in which we see is kind of the Barbie world of the 90s. That sort of schism between where we were and where we are. It's just almost like find myself thinking of either Brecht or, or Thornton Wilder in these things. Oh yeah, well, yeah. Thornton Wilder, yes, he's he's a huge figure for me as a writer. The sort of simplicity he, he's able to achieve. I wish I had less words than I do, <laughs> because um, I I really admire <laughs> minimalism. Yeah, I definitely. I mean, with Barbie, I mean, with all the movies that I've made, I think there is also um, this kind of again like ache and tension between. Um, childhood and adulthood. And I think that, you know, even though in making Barbie, I wanted to reflect, you know, where Mattel had come with Barbie as a brand from 1959 until now, I couldn't help but draw upon, you know, what the Barbie of my, of me looking at Barbie in, you know, Toys R Us when I was a kid and I was born in 1983. So even when I was, you know, choosing the the logo for Barbie, the, the, the sort of that bubble letter font, I kept being drawn to that font, even though what they've done as a, as a company is they've gone back to the, the, the classic font from 1959, which is a beautiful logo. I mean, and also the 1950s had really great graphic design, but I had an emotional connection to that other font. And I thought, well, you know, the truth is, 
even though it's this global brand, everybody only experiences it in their own narrative. So this font means something to me. And I've always kind of been a believer in um, trying to embroider something that feels not necessarily autobiographical, but, but personal. And that, that is something that definitely happened in this movie, which seems on its face an unlikely place for something that feels personal, but it did. I don't think I would have directed it if it hadn't, afforded that opportunity it's the treatment we're talking minimalism and maximalism with my guest Greta Gerwig whose new I film know. is writer-director <laughs> that's right you brought them up her new film as writer-director is Barbie you can also do the show at kcow.com slash the treatment but Thornton Wilder does this thing that you do where these things are in effect all about small towns and and how mm. exposed we are in small towns that's right I didn't even think of that but that's true that is thematically connected and sort of the comfort of of being known and also the terror of it and and also with what comes with being known is people having expectations and their expectations of you in really archetypal ways rather than personal ways that's right i mean it's funny when we were working on the the character of barbie when when margo and i were working on it together it's a deceptive thing to do as an actor because it's extremely hard to play a character who at the beginning actually has no desires and also no separation from her environment and no internal life. Like that's actually hard to activate because what do you play? Um, you know, so much of an actor's work is kind of um, creating almost like specificity of desires and, and she has none. One thing we talked about is sort of the comfort of, we didn't specifically say small town, but now that you say it, it makes sense. But like the comfort of, you know, even mild fundamentalism of not wondering what you're supposed to be doing, of having uh, something laid out for you that inherently feels meaningful and that you don't have to question it. There'd be a deep peace that can come with that. And I think that that was that was the way we interpreted it. But that's correct. The small town, it's a it's analogous. I mean, weirdly, I find myself thinking of two things, Greta, our town and Nanachka, which is also another mm. comedy about gender roles where a character comes in with rules and those rules have to be addressed or else there's no story. In addressing those rules, they help to define the character. That's so interesting. Well, I... I think about, I mean, Lubitsch is one of my very favorite, my very favorite directors. Um, the way he makes movies, I find them to be so deeply comforting and cozy and entertaining, but never um, announcing the depths of their intentions, simply letting them unfold. His movies to me are extremely comforting. That movie, Shop Around the Corner, To Be or Not To Be, uh, Designed for Living, those are like really touchstones for me. And um, using something that feels so light, lighter than air. And then underneath it, there's something that's still, you know, incredible well of feeling. They're some of my favorite movies. <laughs> My guest who's bringing a wealth of film and pop culture knowledge to her iteration of Barbie is a big screen phenomenon. It's Greta Gerwig. She wrote and directed the film. It's The Treatment, which you can also hear at kcow.com slash The Treatment. There's more to come. Stay with us. 
We're back. We're having fun with Greta Gerwig, the co-writer and the director of the big film version of Barbie, which is somewhere playing near you. I guarantee you that. It's The Treatment, which you can also hear at kcrw.com slash The Treatment. And one of the things you were talking about when you're talking about Blue Bitch that I feel like applies to your films, just as kind of an ethos, which is that they're both playful and austere. These things that seem like they're contradictory, and those contradictions really take the measure of the material. I want to be clear, I am not comparing myself to Lubitsch in any way. Lubitsch is sort of the benchmark and I'm I'm always, you know, trying to, to get close to it. So, uh, but I, I mean, he's one of so many, I mean, you know, Howard Hawks, Preston Sturges being part of this kind of people who made comedies that had so much more under the surface and that had a sort of, I mean, I guess Preston Sturges even more, but like the almost a there's an anarchic quality to them which can only be achieved by the supreme control that they have as directors and that was something that i thought a lot about while we were making the movie was that in order to do what this movie does which many nights driving home i thought oh this is really strange (laughs) i don't know that this is going to work but in order to kind of do something that that has that gleeful anarchy, it felt like I had to have more control as a director, even than I had managed to have up until that point, because it's so it's such a tightrope. So I think I I continued to look back at those movies that I felt thread the needle. It's interesting because there's an aspirational quality in those movies that you're talking about in Preston Sturges but, and, 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 and Hawks too, but also in so many of those films by those filmmakers, there is no salt on institutions. And my gosh, I mean, I can't think of an institution that Barbie doesn't assault. <laughs> yes, that's true. I know it's sort of, um, they kind of had this sort of outsider insider position with everything. Um, obviously they're working within the Hollywood system, but they're also always working to break it somehow and sort of they're cheeky within it. And I think that's something that I, I respond to and think about a lot while I'm working on these things. And I also, I mean, you know, I mean, and it's also just that the execution, they're just executed so perfectly and the actors are so wonderful. And it's a kind of acting that's such a high degree of difficulty but is, you know, it's almost like classical comedy. Another movie movie I showed to Margot and Ryan was um, 20th Century because Carol Lombard, but also um, I thought John Barrymore in 20th Century has this completely over-the-top performance. He's, you know, wild-eyed, he's egomaniacal, he's dramatic, he needs an audience at all times. And I thought there's something in that <laughs> that felt, like it could be useful for Ken. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not saying be John Barrymore, but maybe think about John Barrymore. And, and, and Ryan kind of took that in and then sort of ran wild with it. And also just, I mean, particularly also with just go back to Lubitsch because all of his movies take place in whatever the kind of heightened Lubitsch land, which is nowhere, somewhere, everywhere, a country, but it, it's particular. I mean, there's so many details in the way that comes to life, which are also, I'm always hoping for and looking for those things. Like, um, I think it's to be or not to be, the snow is um, feathers, tiny little feathers. And I thought, <laughs> oh, it's, you know, the beauty of raining feathers is snow because they show up so nicely on film. 
And I thought, oh, if I ever make another movie with snow, I want to use feathers. Um, Again, I kept saying with Barbie, we wanted it to be authentically artificial. And I think that that some of these movies and the sort of lubich of it has, you know, the fact that their feathers makes it more real than if it were snow somehow. I keep wanting to go back to Nanashka only because it feels like literally animating something that's slightly inhuman in both cases. And the, the mm-hmm. idea of making these these women generous without turning them into victims or, or melodramatic figures, yeah. that felt like a hard needle to thread, too. And when you were talking about Margot and Ryan, you mean, of course, Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling. For those of you who haven't been outdoors for the last couple of weeks, they are the stars of Barbie. <laughs> and um, But I just think all these, these things you're talking about are really just incredibly difficult things to do off singularly, to do all of them in the same frame with the same thing, surrounded by other other characters with the same names who you have to try to, and forgive me for using this word, individuate, you really mm. made it hard for yourself. I did. I did. I actually remember. Um, I showed, yeah, I showed an early cut to um, someone I trust very much. I try to widely kind of talk to people, show cuts, even though, you know, it's always painful because, you know, you realize how far you have to go to make something work. And just she said at the end and she's brilliant she she said she was like okay she said you know this is actually very hard to achieve and i was like i know and she was like you got some work to do and i said i know i know i know yeah i mean they're all called barbie they're all called ken it's an alternate world it's there's so many things that have to kind of you have to click into and i still have you know, a tremendous anxiety around it, which also to go to um, other films that I felt there's lots of films I was looking at. And, you know, we didn't even talk about all the soundstage musicals that I loved, but sort of more recently, the Warren Beatty version of Heaven Can Wait, I thought about because it's it's also something that's extremely uh, high concept and you just believe the whole thing. You go with the whole thing. And I, I kept thinking... That's the way to to try to do this is to continue to make it feel you know related to life. And heaven can wait. That too is sort of about somebody who's constantly trying to sort of articulate his dissatisfaction and explain something that doesn't make sense to anybody else but him. But there's this yes. belief. I mean, this belief that in in its way. There is this article of faith that our town demands of the characters and of the audience. And there's the same demand with audiences in Barbie, isn't there? You have to believe that this place is a place. And all these people with the same names are people or else you completely are, are out of it. And you, then that's a, a big question to ask of the audience early on. Another topic that I'm always interested in is... Um is faith in general um, and faith sort of, you know, uh, with characters, faith uh, between, you know, the audience and the movie, faith between directors and actors. I mean, it, it's so much of what we have to do when we make a movie is believe in something before it's there. Like we have to say, no, I, I can see what it is before it exists. And, you know, it's one of the beautiful things about making movies which is, you know, it's a communal 
it's a communal art form. So it requires faith at every step of (laughs) every step of it from every person, every collaborator to every actor to the studio. It just, and then, you know, the phrase we use when you go into a a movie theater, as you say, you suspend this belief, which is faith, (laughs) I would say. Absolutely. We're talking about Articles of Faith with the writer-director of Barbie, Greta Gerwig. It's The Treatment, which you can also hear kcrw.com slash The Treatment. But as we're talking about these things, though, and, and they're wildly abstract, how do you talk to these actors about these things that are kind of abstract? I mean, is it doing things like showing them 20th century? So Ryan has something concrete about how to play both sort of outsized presence and demands in a room, but also being incredibly insecure simultaneously and and then showing to be or not to be. So Margot understands that somebody who's playing at something but knows there's something underneath the thing she's playing and that everything is at stake, even though she's playing at something. I do like to show a lot of films. Like I um, I remember there's a in uh, The Lady Eve, there's this moment with... Um, Henry Fonda and Barbara Stanwyck and he's trying to propose to her and a horse keeps getting in the way. And um, it's so funny because they play it so straight. And I, so I say like, here, watch this. And then, you know, they either will see the movie or they won't, but we'll talk about it. And then I think a lot, I guess in terms of movies, because I, I, I love them and I, you know, they make me feel brave to think of all of the movies that have been made. But I also, you know, there's sometimes you know, poems or something from a book or a song or different images, or it it could honestly be drawn from so many different places. And I, I feel like as a director, I'm in a conversation with my actors for, I mean, I like being in a conversation with them for about a year before we even get to pre-production because I think it just, there's like an ability to, that the performances become lived inside and kind of surrounded by all of this. You know, part of it is also just developing a shorthand with them. And then I kind of learn what activates them or makes them feel insecure or, you know, and I, and try to only stay in zones that make them, you know, the most free, the most creative that they can be. But I I think those, those long conversations um, over many months is how I, I start to approach it because, you know, filming is only a certain number of days that are limited and timed and you want to, give them as much space as you can. But really, I, I mean, I, I feel like movies are very much made in, in prep. And so that's the time when we can be totally creative. This is really your first musical. I mean, because there's a lot of musical numbers. And not only that, but there's a kind <laughs> yeah. of choreography in the way the characters move through the shots. So even when they're not dancing or there's not a de facto musical number, it's still movement. And it's also kind of, it fills negative spaces uh, the way musicals do. I, I mean, I guess in a way I've just kept moving closer and closer to making a musical, like a full blown musical, because that's, I love musicals, but I haven't quite gone all the way yet. But I, you know, in Little Women, there are, I think at some point someone said to me, oh, you have four different dance numbers. In Little Women. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, you're right, I do. And then in Lady Bird, I had, sort of a staged musical inside the movie and then in Francis High I had dancing and um Mistress America which I wrote with Noah Baumbach I I don't have a musical number but what I do have is kind of this cacophony of everyone talking at the same time 
which was so pleasurable. He directed it, but we wrote it together. And, and that's, you know, part of that almost patter of language. One way we wanted it to feel like a musical in addition to the beautiful painted skies and the kind of authentic artificiality, or I kept saying it's really fake, like it's really there, but it's also <laughs> really pretend, is, um, you know, why every single person in Barbie land is uh, a dancer, because I wanted it to have that quality that, you know, when you see a Gene Kelly musical, when everyone on the street is a dancer or, you know, in, in like Gigi or like, you know, Vincent Minnelli, like everybody who's riding by in a carriage is a dancer in the opening. Um, they hold themselves differently and they look kind of surreal. And I, I wanted that to be part of how we would communicate that it was a different world that operated on different rules was that everybody you looked at was a dancer, even when they weren't dancing. Tell me how daunting it is to take on a project about an entity that people have actual ownership of and have very specific feelings about it because they own them and these Barbies belong to them and did what they wanted them to do and they had these private conversations with them. And as somebody who grew up with Barbies yourself, you understand that. How daunting was that? Or was it just not something you thought about until I asked this very goofy question? I did think about it because I obviously, I can't know everybody's individual experience, but I also wanted the movie to be able to be a window onto their own experience. Even if it was an experience of being a brother watching a sister play and maybe wanting to play and not knowing if you could, or, you know, it was kind of trying to set something up where you could, yeah, connect back to yourself. And I was speaking to someone yesterday who said, watching the movie, she said, I remembered that I loved Barbie. And then I, there was a point when I completely rejected it. And I felt so glad that she said that because I thought that's exactly what I had wanted it to do was kind of allow you to think about how you related to this inanimate object, these, these dolls. And I, you know, I always think about the fact that we are so advanced as, you know, there's so much technology. There's all these amazing things that we can do. And we go to the moon and have satellites and, and the internet and now AI and goodness, it's, a, it's so much. But also we still make dolls and have feelings about them, which seems, you know, very medieval or something that, um, you know, I think when we walk around in our daily lives, we, we think uh, like, well, we're past that, but we're not. And, I, and how wonderful that we're not. And I think kind of collectively to feel the, I don't know, like the joyful absurdity of that. No, I guess I thought about that too, because that's also kind of for a lot of kids, it's their first breakup because they, they push this thing away. And so mm -hmm. many people, you talk to them about having these figures, these dolls, whatever you want to call them, they, there's that wistfulness, and we see that, and I don't want to give too much away here, but that becomes a big part of the movie, too, about that breakup and the repercussions of that. As an adult, if you look at dolls, and I also, I have to say I include boys, because I, I feel like with boys, they always call their dolls action figures, and I yeah. think, no, no, they're dolls. <laughs> they're dolls. They're dolls. Action figures makes it sound more like... Um, we're not just playing with dolls. Yeah, we're doing something. <laughs>
now that we've had Greta Gerwig explain to us the difference between an action figure and a doll, which is the fact there isn't any, we will thank her for her time and congratulate her on her terrific film, Barbie. Greta, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. That was so fun. Greta Gerwig, who also co-wrote the summer saga Barbie, which is undoubtedly playing at a theater near you. Movies and more on past episodes of The Treatment at kcrw.com slash the treatment. Express thoughts about images. It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes. Join Jacqueline Coley as she hosts a brand new podcast, Seen on the Screen. Meet the innovative people at NBC Universal as they share their journeys, inspirations, and the movies that define them. Each episode is an intimate and fun conversation about the impact of film. Seen on the Screen is available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. This conversation with actor Killian Murphy, the star of Oppenheimer, was recorded prior to the SAG after strike. It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. With sitting across my guest, a poem by Lawrence Ferlinghetti comes to mind. The world is a beautiful place if you don't mind a touch of hell every now and then. That describes a number of the films you've done with directors we've had here before, from Ken Loach to Neil Jordan to Danny Boyle, with, with whom we made one of my favorites, Sunshine. His new film, part of his uh, continuing collaboration with writer-director Christopher Nolan, is Oppenheimer. Killian Murphy, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We were talking about sound before we got started. So let me talk to you about finding J. Robert Oppenheimer's voice. Oh, yeah. Because you can find his voice around, uh-huh. and you can also hear that meter that he has. I mean, yeah. in his weird way, he was a born dramatist because he knew when to stretch out a pause for effect. Yes. Well... There is an awful lot of archive material available um, on YouTube, which I dived into. The problem with that is that most of those uh, recordings are of him giving lectures. So it's quite formal and quite performative. And we didn't really have any kind of candid recordings of him just, you know, uh, casually discussing something. Um, so we kind of had to extrapolate from that, from the the more formal recordings and kind of figure out how he might uh, have talked, you know, in his day to day life. You know, I was very keen at the beginning not to just to do an impression. That's not really where my skills lie. But you are right. He did have a very distinctive meter and it was a sort of a very kind of Orson Welles had a similar kind of thing. And, and um, you know, like, um, but, you know, it's a kind of a mid-Atlantic, very period type of American accent that we wanted to kind of achieve. But again, like for me, it wasn't trying to do a, a perfect impression of him because that's not like that's not what I do best. No, but it was 
an aspect of it is a voice that was used to being heard. Yeah. Even as a young person, a voice that was sort of used to taking the measure of other people. Yes. And I feel that in the in your Oppenheimer, that sort of, this is who I am, who are you in the voice? Yeah, there's there's some of that. Mr. Rogers was the other character. <laughs> he kind of has that. It's a, you, know, you never hear people talking like that anymore. You know, and it, it just was of that, that And he's of the same period. era. And exactly. He's part of, he was a World War II veteran exactly. as well. And, yeah. and so that, yeah, that, that sort of essential need to calm people yes. by offering this sort of sense of authority yes. in your voice. I wonder, though, when, when you first had the conversation with Chris Nolan about doing this, mm. what was the conversation? He just called me up uh, out of the blue. Uh, that's his style. There, there is no preamble, no warning. I mean, I have worked with him many, many times over the years, and he tends to do that. He'll just call you up and say, hey, I've got this script. Would you like to take a look? And with Chris, this doesn't mean that he emails you the script. This means that he flies <laughs> to wherever you are. And in my case, I was in I was in Dublin and it was kind of at the tail end of the pandemic. And I sat in his hotel room and read it and he left and he went to look at the Francis Bacon studio in Dublin. And uh, and I sat there for about three hours and and read it. And playing this this guy, because I think so often, I think we use a guy who plays people who are going up against institutions. With Ken Loach, when you work with uh -huh. him. And, and even when you work with Neil Jordan, these are characters going up against these sort of set ways of thinking. Yeah. And there's a part of you that seems to like that character. <laughs> it's difficult for me to see it from the inside, looking out. But maybe there is a through line to some of the characters. I do like characters that, that are under a lot of pressure or put themselves under a lot of pressure or find themselves under a lot of pressure. Because that to me is really interesting when you kind of begin to dig down into the psychology and see what's actually going on in those kind of, you know, into the kind of um, nooks and crannies of our psychology. You know, I, I find that very interesting. I'm really interested in human behavior, you know, and, and, and what that pressure does to, to, the, to humans and how they respond to it. Well, if we look at the Winds of Shakespeare Barley or, or this or Peaky Blinders or any, I think even Sunshine, these are characters who think they're being moral in their way. Mm-hmm and are trying to almost impose their idea of morality on the world that doesn't quite, may not quite accept it. Yeah, at that time. Yes. Yeah, at that time. To me, that's that's just really interesting writing, you know, because I've said this many times, you know, the sort of, the, the sort of square-jawed hero or the sort of, the villainous kind of uh, trope, I, they don't really appeal to, to me, you know, I, and I think this explosion in great television that has happened over the last number of years has been because of this writing sits somewhere in that gray area in the middle where these characters are neither one nor the other, but they're somewhere in the middle. And we find that riveting, I think, to, to watch. I mean, we can say that goes back in a lot of ways for a lot of people who encountering you the first time uh, to seeing your Jonathan, your Scarecrow in the yeah. Batman films who actually thinks he's doing, he's convinced he's doing the right thing and he's being a doctor. That's true, I suppose. But I mean, I, I, he probably does fall into the classic kind of villain role, I think. I think he's certainly yeah. that, but also yeah. there, there's some level of rationalization. I'm doing what is right for society by reminding it what fear really is. For sure. I mean, I definitely think, but I also think he was probably entirely deranged, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, and, and, he, and he served a purpose. But that's in the context of a, of, a, of a comic book movie, you know, and we were very clear that that's what we were, we were making, even though Chris was grounding it in kind of reality. But, but nevertheless, it was, that's what it was. I would ask you, if your conversations with Chris, if the conversations turn to morality at all and how you depict somebody who's trying to fight 
that difference between being immoral and amoral. Uh, first of all, I can't think of another film, an epic film of this scale has been really about one man's battle with that. Certainly it's been the most complicated character for me to, to play in those terms. For one reason is that he's a real life figure who is this iconic figure and this, um, this world-renowned figure, you know, love him or loathe him. And what happened in 45 changed the course uh, of history. And we are all still living in the shadow of what happened in 45. Many protagonists that you play, they will start uh, on a graph, you know, and the arc will go like this and they will they will change. And you can see they've changed dramatically over the course of the, of the movie. And, and it's quite straightforward. But with uh, Oppenheimer, it was very unusual because morally he's kind of all over the map and he changes his position many times throughout our story. And it, it's kind of, you know, Faustian is, is, is a kind of a, a kind of a basic a metaphor to use, but kind of is because like Faust, he tried to renegotiate the bargain. And then he was, you know, the American government, the state kind of destroyed him. And and it's Promethean, you know, completely as as the title of the, of the book suggests. So it's fascinating to play that. And Chris gave me this really interesting phrase at the beginning when we began shooting. And, and he, he said that he's kind of morally dancing between the raindrops. And, I, and that was very useful for me to try and play. That makes sense, and it almost makes sense, too, in the way he uses his voice. He's trying to convince himself of the argument as he's making it to somebody else. Uh-huh. Because he's so precise in his use of words. Yes. And constantly correcting others. Yes. And surrounding himself with people who are fighting over words mm-hmm. and, and that kind of specificity that I found myself thinking that and watching that performance. I thought, unusually for you, your characters count with a kind of rectitude about them. And yeah. Oppenheimer felt like the one of the first who did not have that. I suppose that must have a lot to do with his intellect, you know, because he was, by all accounts, the, always the smartest guy in the room. Do you know, always. I think that can be a burden. You know, I don't think that is necessarily a gift. We walk around every day and we, we live our lives and we do the best we can. But I think people like Oppenheimer and many of the people in this film have this extraordinary intellect, which means that they're thinking about every day, like our place in the universe, the structure of the universe and uh, an infinity and, and all through the lens of quantum mechanics. And it's, it must be exhausting. Yeah. It's a movie about a world changing moment. And this is not a phrase we're using loosely here. Yeah. It's a moment that changed the world. And for me, the moment after that, uh, and the way that crowd sort of takes that, I don't want to use the word triumphant, but that achievement. Uh-huh. Is, is for me maybe the greatest moment in the film out of lots of great moments. Uh-huh. At that point, we see, we really do see how divided he is uh-huh. about what he has brought versus what he has achieved. Yeah. It's a genocidal weapon he was developing, but I actually don't think they were thinking about it in those terms. They call it the gadget, you know? And the Manhattan Project. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, they didn't actually think about it in those terms. And I think they managed to sort of disassociate themselves from the idea of it. It's almost like this collective cognitive dissonance, you know, that they couldn't, they just couldn't actually think about. I mean, there was a section of the scientists that didn't agree with it, obviously, but these guys in Los Alamos just plowed on. And yet that point in the movie when, when the bomb is dropped and the reality of it sinks in, that was really, really hard to play that, sort of the scale of it, I suppose. It's an abstraction become reality. Yeah. There's a moment where he looks at his hands, <laughs> mm. uh, which I found just kind of striking because he's beholding himself as a literal instrument 
of this thing that he's unlocked. Yeah. Do you ever read um, Cormac McCarthy? Read, yes. Yeah. So I, I was reading um, Passenger and Stella Maris, is the, which is the, it's a sort of accompanying yes, yeah, one yeah. book. That's sort of a duologue uh, between these two characters. And, and she's this genius physicist. At one point in the book, she says, uh, she says the Manhattan Project was up there with fire and language. And I remember that it just struck me that's kind of astonishing statement, and it's probably true. So you're you're trying to play the magnitude of that <laughs> in a scene, but Chris does it in such a deft way and such a subtle way. I think it's it's really beautiful. So take a break. It's clearly, there's nothing to talk about with Killian Murphy. <laughs> His new film, he's starring in Chris Nolan's Oppenheimer's The Treatment. There's more to come. Stay with us. I give him a chance to swallow some water. Gillian Murphy sitting here with us. It's the treatment, which you can also hear at kcow.com slash the treatment. I mean, you've got scenes with Tom Conte, which are some of my favorites in the movie. Tom Spang Einstein. Yeah. Yes, because that's the Rashomon of the movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it, there's so many yeah. other films in there, but every scene, I'm not going to give too much away here. And it becomes this kind of unfolding of a detective, both a literal and an emotional detective story. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you about playing, because each of those, it feels like your body language changes a little bit. I mean, I, I, I love Tom Conti. And I mean, it's very, very hard to actually play a figure like Einstein. Uh, but he, he does it extraordinarily, extraordinarily well. What makes this movie special to me is, first of all, it was one of the greatest scripts I'd ever read. You know, it was, it was a, just a gargantuan achievement by Chris, I think, you know, to take that book and that piece of history and then put it into a, into a script. And then what I think he succeeds in so brilliantly is the ending, because I think that's where films can often fail is, is the ending. And the ending here is so satisfying, I think, as a viewer and uh, surprising. I want to ask you about doing scenes that intimate with a camera that big. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just in, in terms of like the staging and how do you, how do you position yourself? Because it's it's IMAX. Yeah, it's huge. I've kind of gotten used to it from working with Chris over the years. And the thing you have to remember about Chris's sets is that even though he makes these movies on a giant canvas, it genuinely feels like a like a, like an independent movie when you're on the floor with him because there's one camera. There's Chris. There's no uh, video village. There's no monitors, and there's the the, the boom up, and there is the actors. And, and that's it. And it and it feels very private. It feels very safe. It feels like a laboratory to kind of experiment and to make mistakes. So even though there's this huge, massive camera very close to you, you kind of forget it. And it's just a very, it's a very intimate in, environment. And Chris is always, always there beside you, beside, the, you, you know, your scene partner and in the scene. So what I'm trying to say is that the sort of mechanics of cinema that you would expect in films like his, in all my experiences, you know, working in Inception, working in Dunkirk, it's never felt like a huge, massive blockbuster movie. It's always felt about the performances. And that's why I think that his films succeed is because he spends most time on the performances and he's an incredible director of actors. What you really respond to as an actor is emotional transformation. Uh Uh-huh. And, and the directors who really got that out of you, 
the work with Ken Loach is just extraordinary. And but also I feel the same way about your films with Danny Boyle and and Sunshine. It's really it's a big group in a very confined circumstance, yeah. which I feel like you're at your best when you're trapped in rooms. <laughs> These characters feel like there's a kind of sense where you play claustrophobia. Oh, I see. <laughs> you talk about that a little bit? Because I think it's um, really interesting. I don't know if I can. I'll tell you what I'll, I'll, tell you what I'll, I'll talk to you about. I'll talk to you about, um, <laughs> I'll I'll you about Ken Loach because okay. making that film sort of kind of redefined my approach to, to screen acting because the way that Ken works is that you don't have a script and you shoot everything in chronological order. So basically what, what it does is it strips you away of sort of any sort of acting with your brain. It's all about emotion and instinct. And that to me is the purest form of, of acting. That's the thing that, that I always try and, and get to in a scene. So with Ken, we would shoot a scene and then stuff would happen in camera that we wouldn't expect. So you, you react completely uh, honestly in, in that moment. Uh, uh, and you're not thinking about it. You know, all the notes you may have made on your script and they're they're useless to you now. It's just in the moment, what happens in that second in time. That's to me what I'm always after in, in a scene. It's like being a musician then, isn't it? Totally. I, that's, a, that's a really good analogy because like there was, I have scenes in this movie with um, Robert Downey Jr., you know, and acting with him was, he's electrifying, absolutely electrifying uh, to act opposite because he's so immediate and available. And, and it did feel like... Jazz, you know, it did feel like that non-verbal thing you get when you're playing with a group of musicians that you're just responding to. And it felt like music, you know, to me. And that's what I'm after. So it's really hard to, again, to, to put words onto it. No, if you put it that way, because you say that, you make me think he's like the Billy Cobham of actors. <laughs> there's an explosion when he's on the stage with those with that kid. Yeah. And there's an excitement in that too, yeah. isn't there? Totally. Man, I've seen Billy Cobham play live. Have you? Uh, so have I. Yeah, man. Unbelievable. Oh, but yeah, I mean, you know, so you know what I mean. There's yeah, also that, that same kind of dynamism yeah. and that exuberance that Billy Cobham has on stage. Totally. I mean, that I feel that in, in talking about Downey. Oh, and, I mean, he's 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 a magician, you know, uh, and, and he's absolutely extraordinary in this film. So again, like in those scenes with with him, all the sort of prep and all your reading and all of that and those months of absorbing stuff and immersing yourself, that kind of go out the window and it's just working on a on energy, on vibration, you know, and, and that's that that's what I'm always after. But I kind of felt that a little bit too in, in Venus and you with Neil Jordan. I mean, I felt that in some ways too, that you were finding that character just by virtue of putting on those clothes that changed the way you walked and that changed the way you held your head. Yeah. Well, and there's that kind of physical stimulation. It, it goes from being abstract to concrete. Yeah. It, it's very superficial, but but the costume and the physicality of a character is really useful. I mean, in, for Oppenheimer, getting that silhouette because he was so skinny, and and, and you know the, the pork pie hat and the and the pipe and like it was all very deliberate. He, it was a costume that the Completely. brim, the hat going over the so you couldn't really see the eyes and, sure. and and the pipe obscuring the mouth and the shoulder pads being a little bit too big for the suit. Completely, he was self mythologizing, you know, the, the the whole way through. And it's funny because you know Chris used to send me pictures of like David Bowie in, in certain times in his career. Uh, you know, to, it's, the, it's, it's the thin white Duke period, kind it's, of. Yes, yeah. no, it's completely that. And did you ever see that uh, documentary, The Cracked Actor? I think it's called. Oh yeah, about Ball. Doing what? Bertolt Brecht's Ball. Oh, well, is he? In, yeah. In that doc. Yeah. It's years ago since I've seen it. But you know, he's got that he's got the hat and he's and he's so emaciated, but so unbelievably charismatic. And anyway, and the way the way he's clothes used to hang on him and so we use that with our costume designer and with Chris a lot. Uh, uh, and uh, Ella Mirajnik who's been on the show before. She is extraordinary. Yeah. 
that transformative thing that, that you respond to is it, to get yourself out of yourself, isn't it? I love it, man. I, I love transformative roles. They've always appealed to me. I love disappearing into someone. They're, they're, they're the actors that I always admired. You know, the ones who you think, oh, f- is that the same? Is that the same actor? You know, I, I love that. But it's that same way you're getting lost in, I mean, you just mentioned jazz, but that same way that you start off knowing where you, where you want to go, but from the time you start to the time you finish, it's a different composition every time. Yeah. I mean, Completely. Billy Cobham can never play Stratus the same way <laughs> twice if he played a hundred times in one night. Yeah. I mean, just watching your body language change, you were talking about that. Yeah, I love it. I mean, it's, I love, because, you know, I'm a frustrated musician. I, I wanted to be a musician until I was about 20. It didn't work out. So then I, you know, I started doing theater because that's, that's the live, it's the live experience, you know. Sure. But, but the thing that happens sometimes on the floor, on set with great directors and great actors where it does feel like, kind of magical and you cannot put language onto it. it it sounds very pretentious of me to be talking like this but it is sort of transcendent or something you know again you're talking just about Robert Downey Jr but there's in the, the same kind of exuberance of this kind of this an impishness that we can see both you and Oppenheimer responding to. Oh, yeah, 100%. I think another skill of Chris's is that he casts films immaculately. Every single actor in this film knew exactly what they needed to do and just turned up knowing more information about their specific scientists they were playing or whomever than, than any of us did, you know, because they'd done so much research. And I think but Chris has done that in all of his films. It's interesting to me, too, the way your characters move. Again, that climactic moment in Los Alamos when he's kind of looking at his hands. Yeah. How much calculation is that for you? And how much is that you getting lost in character, having these things kind of realize themselves, these physicalizations that you do? It's a combination of things, really. Uh, I remember for that particular scene, it was very loose. And we shot it a few times. And Chris kind of just let it ha- happen. But he, he gives the most, the most perfect, perfect notes that can change your whole emotional access, really, by just... Uh, combination of words but with that it was kind of free we just did it a few times and it was just very loose and free and and, and i love that i kind of love the improvisational nature of, of that you just have to see where it goes because like getting back to what you're talking about allowing yourself the chance to get lost in it yeah yeah that, that, that's what that, that that's what i adore you know and you talked about the physicality I've, I've done a lot of theater and i love acting with my my body you don't get to do as much of that in film because it's generally the close-up you know but i i adore acting with with my body and again with oppenheimer when you start working on the the, the silhouette and and making him skinny and all that I, it just changes your energy it just changes the way your body moves it changes the sort of machinery and the mechanics of your body and then the costuming obviously helps in the hair and makeup helps but that, I, I love building it that way but it bit by bit by bit I don't know, you become kind of porous. Do you know what I mean? Is that when you know the character's working for you, when you feel like you're that kind of porous, that things are just coming into you and you're open to them? Yeah, you never, you never know, though. You never know until... Uh, I never know. I still don't know. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an ongoing thing, you know? I never think like a character's finished and done. It's kind of, you moved on to the next one. My guest is Killian Murphy. We're talking about Indecision. <laughs> <laughs> the new film is Oppenheimer. You can also do the show at slash the treatment. Thank you so much for doing this. Pleasure. Thanks, man. Actor Killian Murphy stars in his fifth collaboration with writer-director Christopher Nolan. That film is the biopic Oppenheimer. 
The show is produced and edited by Rebecca Mooney and mixed by Katie Gilchrist. Help this week from Laura Kondarajan. The Treat is back next week. To better days, everyone, I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's The Treatment. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.